the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We love to gather with you here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Alan Dempsey, Mr. Christmas, does our engineering, does it well. And Andrew Hurdliska is our producer, and Kevin Thompson is our first guest. Fort Smith, Arkansas is where he is lead pastor at Community Bible Church. Kevin, welcome. Glad we can hook up here. Well, Pat, and, thanks so much for having me. And uh, your new book is called Happily, a commitment, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. Um, what's your sense about marriages? Uh, what do you see going on, Kevin? What's your concern? Well, it's it's a fascinating time. I think I think we we've come out of a, a generation where uh, divorce was common and and easy. I think there's now a generation that that was raised up in primarily split families, broken homes, and 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 they might have a little bit of more of a deeper commitment, deeper desire to have a a love that truly does last. And yet they're searching because they don't really know where to find that, and society really doesn't equip us. On how to be how to be married, how to develop a marriage. We think so often it's just something that just happens, instead of realizing that it takes a great deal of work. So, so many of the couples that I work with think that a successful marriage is just the flip of a coin. Mm. It's fifty fifty whether it happens or not. And what I try to work with them and help them and show them is that a successful marriage is much more of a flip of the will. It is a willingness now to do the work necessary to create the lives that we want to love each other well. Uh, your book consists of eight commitments, and I want to dive into them. The first commitment, happily humble yourselves. Uh, tell us about that, Kevin. These commitments truly are somewhat contrarian. And, and so the idea of happily and humility all at the same time doesn't make sense to us. And, and yet I truly believe that, that if we will willfully commit ourselves to, to these eight things with a sense of joy about us, uh, that that it will it will lead to a happy relationship, and to me, a successful marriage all begins with this concept of humility. It's the foundation of everything. In my opinion, pride is at the root of nearly every, if not all, marital problems. Mm. Uh, you, you think about adultery. Adultery is nothing more than me pridefully believing I deserve something that I have no rights to. Uh, money problems so often is nothing more than than the pride of me being unwilling to live within my means. Communication problems are so often the, the byproduct of pride, where either I'm not willing to humble myself and, and, and communicate what I truly feel, or I'm not willing to be humble and to listen to what my spouse uh, has to say. And, and so to me, uh, the very foundation of a successful marriage uh, begins with a sense of humility, where I recognize I don't know what it takes to be married. I don't know what it takes to have a successful marriage. We don't know what it takes to be married to each other. But together, we're going to lock arms, and we're going to learn. And so we're going to be influenced by others. We're going to be influenced by one another. We're going to continually work and grow and learn. Whenever we don't have the sense of humility, problems begin to surprise us, and they surprise us, and we always place the blame on somebody else. And yet when humility kind of resides within us, we anticipate we're going to have struggles. We're not shocked whenever we have problems, and we take a personal responsibility about those. And then we begin to grow. And so when humility is not present, uh, there is a cancer eating away then at that marriage. And it has very little chance of being successful when pride is present. And that leads to the second commitment, happily embrace the hurt. Explain that to us, Kevin. Well, I do think uh, in, in this book of the eight chapters of the eight commitments, this is the one that surprised me the most. And yet this is the one that I might have the deepest appreciation for uh, now. <clears throat> and the basic concept is simply this, that I'm not always going to be the husband my wife deserves. 
she's not always going to be the spouse, the wife that I deserve. Marriage itself, at times, is going to disappoint us. It's not going to live up uh, to the high standard that so often we desire of it giving to us everything that we want. Life itself is going to hurt. But the reality is, whenever we lean into that hurt, whenever I, I appreciate my own faults and my own weaknesses and get to work on them, whenever I realize that there's many strengths my wife has, but she has some weaknesses, and, and I admit those, whenever I see that marriage itself doesn't, doesn't always give me everything that I want it to give me, that begins to create an ability for me not only to mourn that which I don't have, but then to appreciate that which is good. Now, Pat, by no means am I saying that we need to excuse bad behavior within ourselves or within our spouse. I'm not, I'm not talking about we need to lean into the addiction and just let it be and make excuses for it. I'm not talking about that at all. Uh, but there are just quirks within my personality. Things that are my strengths also lead to some weaknesses. And uh, whenever we begin to embrace those, whenever we understand that marriage is going to be imperfect and, and we, we, we accept that, that gives us the ability then to appreciate that which is good. But the interesting thing is we live in a day and a time in which we, we try to avoid all the hurt, avoid all the pain. And whenever we do that, we live in denial of the pain, which, which now cripples us from being able to appreciate that which is good and to express gratitude. And so I truly think that whenever you and I then are able to happily embrace the hurt, to name it, to admit it, to confess it, then that empowers us then to suddenly embrace the good. Now, let's get to the third commitment. Happily avoid both apathy and aggression. Uh, explain that one. Yeah, these, these commitments are building on each other. The order is no accident, and so it begins the foundation of humility, which then allows us to recognize our own faults, the faults of our spouse, the faults of marriage itself. Uh, but then that, that puts us in a position where we're in danger of either being apathetic, thinking there's nothing we can do about our marriage, or being overly aggressive, where we attack each other, attack problems uh, in, in a personal kind of way. <clears throat> but instead, what, what I'm calling us toward is, is kind of the words that Jesus used here, blessed are the meek, which is the sense of power under control, the strength that is then directed toward the benefit of our spouse and, and toward accomplishing and moving forward. So often, specifically men, I think men were created with the strength, and when sin rules our lives, when pride rules our lives, our strength is used to the detriment of our spouse and our children, when in reality God gave us that strength to the benefit of our spouse and our children. And the way to use that strength in a positive way is truly the way of meekness. And what meekness is, meekness avoids apathy. It doesn't just stand back and let whatever happened happen. And yet it also avoids aggression. It doesn't use its strength to the detriment of, of those it's supposed to support. But instead, it is this power under control. The old, the old preacher illustration is the idea of a jockey on a horse. Mm. That, that is meekness then illustrated. That is how we're supposed to operate in the midst of a marriage. And so when a problem exists, we're not apathetic toward it. We don't deny it. We don't ignore it. But we also don't begin to attack one another because of it. Instead, we direct our strength, working together, we direct our strength to accomplish and to overcome what the actual problem is. When we can operate in meekness, we can operate together. Now, let's move to this topic, commitment four. Happily see marriage as bigger than you. And I think, I think that, that this concept helps us then with that meekness to then operate in the right way. My wife and I, our relationship is private, it is between the two of us, and yet our love for one another has a far greater impact than just me and her. It also impacts the couple of kids that we have, it also impacts the community in which we live, the church in which I pastor, our extended families, and then ultimately I would even claim uh, that it, it impacts God, that the ultimate aim of marriage is to bring glory to God. And yet whenever we see marriage as just between us, then we can justify pretty much anything, and any decision we want to make is totally fine. Yet when we believe that marriage is bigger than us, then, then it begins to steer our, our decision-making in a different way. Whenever I'm apathetic toward an issue within our, our, our marriage that's really causing a problem, I'm not just hurting myself. I'm not just hurting my wife. I'm hurting my kids. I'm hurting my in-laws. I'm hurting my parents, my nieces, my nephews, this community. Ultimately, I'm actually hurting the kingdom of God. 
my guest, and we'll continue with him. He's a good one, Kevin Thompson. Uh, but right now, there's a break here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, we'll be back. Just a reminder, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. We gather like this every weekend. Always delighted when you're with us. More with Kevin Thompson following these messages. Kevin Thompson uh, joins us from his home in Arkansas. We're talking about his book, simply called Happily. Kevin, we've arrived at commitment number five. Happily, refuse power struggles. Uh, fill us in. Well, I think about marriage in, in, in much the same way that I think about like fifth grade earth science, where we talked about plate tectonics. And you would learn that one giant land mass was moving toward the other giant land mass. And, and as they rubbed against each other, there was this friction and tension began to build until finally there was this kind of explosion called an earthquake. No matter how much a husband and wife are on the same page, they can't be moving in the exact same direction at all times. There is going to be this sense of friction. And it is within human nature to then struggle for the power because we believe that life is best experienced when we're in control, when others serve us, when others do what we want them to do. And the reality is that Jesus teaches us a different way, a way of love, a way of submission, a way of mutual satisfaction. And so mercy, to me, is this key of how to avoid these power struggles. Instead of forcing our own way, we then give and receive mercy. And to me, this this forms almost a sort of, of lubricant that allows tension to exist in relationship but without it creating the explosion, without it creating the earthquake. And whenever we can give and receive mercy, we can support our own spouse, we can love them well, we'll refuse to manipulate them or exploit them, we'll reject the temptation to act out of fear, to try to force our own way. Instead, we'll speak kindly, we'll show restraint, uh, we'll just begin to love each other well. And as we do that, marriage is guaranteed to be complicated, to be full of tension. But as we give and receive mercy, it, it will allow that marriage to operate on a day-to-day basis. Now, now uh, we move to commitment number six, happily live in truth. Uh, what does that mean, Kevin? Truth, truth is where life is found. And, and so often we live in denial. Uh, of who we are, denial of what we're doing, denial of the consequences uh, of the choices that we make. And yet, in in a couple that chooses to celebrate the truth, that whatever the truth is, we're going to put it out on the table, and then we're going to deal with it. And and so they don't live in denial of what's going on. They don't hold back uh, their their feelings or opinions. Uh, They don't have to read between the lines of what's actually being said. Whenever we begin to celebrate the truth, we actually have a chance to succeed. But for as long as we're living in denial, as long as we're hiding part of who we are, hiding and holding our hearts back, uh, then the relationship we have really is going to be a pseudo-relationship. My image of a marriage is that I take my whole heart and I set it out on the table, and Jenny, my wife, takes her whole heart and sets it out on the table, and those two hearts then intermingle, they interact. And yet so often, because of past hurts or hang-ups, we're so afraid that we hold part of our hearts back. And the reality is whenever we do that, we are not giving our full selves uh, to our relationship or to our marriage. Uh, a couple that wants to experience a happy marriage will put their whole heart on the table. And now uh, we move to commitment number seven, <clears throat> happily make peace. Yeah, and I think it's something that knows that it's, it's happily make peace, not happily receive peace. It's striking to me that so many uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, were divorced. It's fascinating to me that they could, they could navigate and negotiate uh, the dance of international peace, but they couldn't make it within their own home. It, it should remind us how difficult it is. Uh, marriage can be so difficult, and yet at the same time, it's very possible uh, to find that peace, but it's peace that we make. It's not peace that we just receive. And really, this is all these commitments that that are built up in in order to get to this point, that we have to be humble, we have to recognize the hurt, 
Uh, we now have to reject uh, apathy and aggression. See marriage is bigger than ourselves. We're living in the midst of truth. We're giving mercy. This now empowers us to come to the table and to negotiate, to be heard, to be understood, to be influenced by the other, and, and to find a common ground so that we can move forward. Not that we have to agree on everything, by no means, but instead we can find a common ground of how we're going to move forward in whatever issue is causing us to struggle. And now, <clears throat> Kevin, happily endure whatever may come, commitment number eight. It, it does wrap up with this concept of Jenny and I are going to lock arms. We're going to be hand in hand, and whatever comes our way, we're going to get through it together. If it's a struggle that one of us is having individually, we're in this together. We're not going to fight against each other. We're going to fight with, alongside uh, each other. And then whatever comes our way, we're bonded together. And the reality is, specifically in this culture, uh, whenever we try to live in a way that values marriage, that values one another, many people aren't going to understand that. And they are gonna, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to make little jokes. They're going to think that you're, you're too serious about something. And yet, if you're committed, truly committed to one another, you're willing to endure whatever comes your way in order to properly love your spouse. Kevin, I want you to explain the uh, arrangement or the, or the uh, link between pride and humility and how it can help or hurt a relationship. Well, I, I think for me, the, this concept of, of humility is, is almost like breathing oxygen uh, in, into a relationship. And so when, when pride is present, pride, we've got to think about pride as our, our, our just most obvious operating system. Unless we make a conscious choice, you and I are going to operate out of pride, and we're never going to know it. And so we're going to be self-centered and self-focused. Everything's going to be viewed through a lens of me. It takes our eyes being opened, I think, by God to even, even consider the concept of true humility. And it's interesting to me, pride, pride expresses itself in two radically different ways. On one hand, you have the typical arrogant person that we all see, we all know is prideful, everything is about them. But then on the other side, you have this person who acts hurt, who acts offended, who, who acts as though everything they're doing is for other people, but they're doing that in a way to control and manipulate. It's still about them, but they're just doing it in, in a different way. True humility uh, now begins to see ourselves in a proper lens and, and shows what our need actually is. And when, when, when we operate in the midst of humility, we recognize the needs of others, we pay attention to what's going on within their own lives. We recognize their viewpoints. We're humble in our own opinions. Uh, so often, pride, to me, expresses itself as couples stop listening to one another. There is what John Gottman calls the, one of the four horsemen of the great apocalypse for Gottman. He, he says is contempt. It's this idea that I am now better than my spouse, which as soon as that happens, we stop listening to them. We stop being influenced by them. And so whenever we can engage in the midst of humility, have our eyes open to our own need, understand who God is, who we are, it empowers us then uh, to have a healthy marriage. Uh, Kevin, I want to get into the topic of meekness. Uh, in your book, you talk about meekness being the right way to act in a marriage, uh, that it's the effective operating system for couples. So what is meekness and what is it not? Yeah, meekness is not weakness. We can't think of it in that way. But meekness is the sense of, of think about it in the concept of nobility, of, of strength, of power, but always done in the proper way, always directed in the right way. Uh, just within the last month, we, you know, we've lost the former president, George H.W. Bush. And I think in many ways, he showed a meekness. Clearly, there was a strength about him. I mean, this is a war hero. This is uh, somebody who, who, who could sacrifice for his country. And, and yet, you never got the sense that he was using that strength to build himself up and, and to do so at the expense of those who were closest to him. Instead, you got this concept that his strength was always for the benefit of those he loved, of those who were around him. That, that's what I think in the concept uh, of meekness, that, that if I'm operating in a meek way, there is a strength about me. There's a moral courage and fortitude about me. But it's never at the cost or to the detriment 
of those who love me, of those who I love, of those I'm close to. And so meekness to me, it's the courage to tell my wife what I think or to say that my, uh, my feelings have been hurt or I'm struggling with this issue, but to do so in a loving, kind, and compassionate way that tries to move the marriage forward rather than just trying to win an argument. In your counseling with couples, Kevin, is there one issue above others that you've noticed? Well, I, I do think it, it, it is this, this basic concept of people not, not understanding that marriage takes intention, mm. that it takes work. You know, you think about it. If I were to, to suddenly lose 20 pounds and I run into somebody and they say, how, how did that happen? I wouldn't go, you know what? It, it's the most amazing thing. I have no idea. It just kind of happened. If that took place, then, then chances are I would be ill in some way. But the reality is what I would say is, man, I had to use this great intention to start working out every morning, to start eating vegetables instead of ice cream. Every good thing in life happens with this great deal of intention, of work, and of effort. The same thing is true with marriage. And yet so often as couples sit on my couch, uh, they don't understand that. And they can't figure out what's going on. They, they see other people with a happy marriage, and they don't know why. What they don't realize is the effort and the intention to work through that. But so often what happens is we accidentally kind of fall in love and we get married and we assume it's always going to be that way. And then we, we begin to live these kind of parallel lives without an intentional effort to draw near to one another. Life gets busy. And, and the next thing you know, we don't even know the person we're sleeping with at night. And, and, and if I can convince couples of one thing, it's just the basic concept uh, of be intentional about your marriage. And so it means, it means buying a book like Happily and reading it, taking the time, making the effort, going, getting away for a weekend, having a conversation. Intention, to me, is, is the number one thing that I see in couples that they just don't understand. Now, Kevin, I want you to talk about mercy. Why is it important to a marriage? Uh, what does that word mercy mean to you? Well, to me, it's, it's, it's important to marriage just because it's important to life just in general. I stand in constant need of kindness, of love, of forgiveness, of a love that I don't really deserve. Mercy to me is, is when somebody holds back from me what I rightly deserve. And, and so whenever Jenny uh, holds back the sharp word in rebuke of what I've just said, or, or chooses not to return my attitude the way I gave it to her the first time. That's the concept of mercy, to hold back what, what we could be justified in doing. You think about it, it's the Christmas season. Uh, you, you think about Joseph. The text says that Joseph uh, had every right to shame Mary, but he had planned on just quietly divorcing her, and then, of course, the angel appeared. Now, mercy is not giving to the person what we could justifiably give to them, but because we have compassion on them, grace— because we understand our own need, our own brokenness, uh, we then extend that to somebody else. As husband and wife are operating in that kind of mindset, where they are restraining the negative consequences from each other, what we could be justified in doing. I could be justified in yelling back. I could be justified in having my feelings hurt and pouting. But whenever we refuse to do that, we extend mercy to one another. And when husband and wife are giving and receiving mercy, uh, their, their relationship can really flourish. Kevin <clears throat> Kevin Thompson, uh, lead pastor at Community Bible Church in Arkansas. His book is called Happily. So uh, over the years, Kevin, uh, what have you learned about what is the best way to protect your marriage? Yeah, I mean, I think of what I talked about earlier about the concept of intention. I, I think intentionally uh, creating opportunities and moments for your relationship to grow. I think a lot of it depends on where you are in seasons of life. Pat, obviously you can talk about this in, in ways I can't even begin to imagine from your experience, but, but where we are at this point, me and my wife with two little kids, and she has a business, and I have a church, and we're riding and doing all this, we have to be intentional about getting time together, about creating it, about just creating conversation. That's all it means for us, is just finding a way to actually talk, to communicate. And, and so I think to protect your marriage you have to first and foremost see your marriage as its own entity in much the same way that I might evaluate a business as its own entity. I see my marriage as its own entity, and then I ask, what does this entity need? What does it need to thrive today? And so often for me at this stage in my life, what it needs is time, a way for me and my wife to talk. And that brings us to a closing word. 
Give me 30 seconds on just the word intimacy. What's that mean to you? Intimacy to me is revealing who we fully are and being completely loved in the midst of it. And so I see my wife totally for who she is. She sees me totally for who I am. Unlike anybody else, she sees me, and yet she loves me anyway. And that then draws us to one another in a very loving and compassionate, very kind uh, way. Kevin Thompson has been our guest, author of the book Happily. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Kevin Thompson, our guest in that first half hour, uh, Douglas Estes joins us from Columbia, South Carolina, uh, has an interesting new book out. It's called Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. Uh, welcome, Douglas. How are you? Hey, doing good. Great to be here today. Braving the Future. Uh, what do you think about our future, Douglas? What are you writing to us? What are you telling us? Well, the gist of the book is that we as Christians do not need to be afraid of future technology. We just need to carefully consider it, and that so much of technology has been of benefit to human society, and it is important for us to be optimistic about the future while also at the same time prayerfully consider it as it comes to pass. Well, you open your book with this topic, Ready... Player One, Virtual Reality, and the Addiction of Tech. Fill us in. That's right. Well, throughout the book, what I do is I introduce each chapter with a recent movie to kind of get the reader up to speed with some of the ideas that are coming. Mm -hmm. And in the first chapter, one of the things that I talk about is about how one of the very soon and very easy texts to sort of start thinking about is virtual reality. And what happens is, is that as these new texts come, one of the things that we struggle with as people is becoming addicted to technology. So the low-hanging fruit of the technology discussion is smartphones. You know, everybody has got an opinion about smartphones and what we should do with them and how frustrating they are at times. But we become, as people, addicted to technology as soon as it comes uh, into our lives. We, we hold on to it. And what are the challenges of that addiction? How do we, how do we address that? How do we uh, engage tech without automatically becoming addicted to it? Now let's move to the next topic, Real Steel, Autonomous Machines and Happiness. Yes, that's right. So the one of the things that will happen as, um, as technology progresses is that we will increasingly have machines in our household that are not just automatic, that don't just simply work at the push of a button, but will actually start doing things um, pre-programmed. And you see that coming through things like Alexa and all these, all these Internet devices that are in our homes. And the challenge is, is that as Christians, we will use these devices, we will use this technology in our home, but the question is, is that will this technology make us happy? Or will the more technology that we have and the more things that are done for us, will it actually cause a deficit in happiness? How will that affect how we view the world and our position before God? I think it's important to mention in this book that one of the things I do is at the end of each chapter, I have a summary about how we as people um, relate to technology, but also how we as people relate to God, who He is in relation to us and to our use of technology. Now, we move to number three, Jurassic World, gene editing and bio-enhancement. Explain all that. That's right. Well, if you've been watching the news, you, you'll notice that there's been a lot of discussion about gene editing, including last week about a Chinese scientist who claims that they edited a human being, a, a baby, um, and... When we talk about gene editing, what we're talking about is changing biological species, whether human or animal. 
You also have a situation where you have bioenhancement going on on a very limited level where people are themselves taking enhancement into their own hands. So you have people in Europe who uh, are embedding RFID devices in their fingers so that when they go uh, to buy a coffee, they don't need to whip out their credit card. They can just wave their finger over the over the credit card machine. So you have this bioenhancement and biohacking debate that started where people are wondering how much are are we should we toy with um, biology? How much should we toy with people? How much should we mess with animals? Now, uh, and our guest is Douglas Estes. He's with us from Columbia, South Carolina. Passengers, artificial intelligence, and the masters of the universe. Yes, that's right. So in this chapter, I look at the idea of artificial intelligence. Obviously, that's a technology that, like many of these, that are already here in uh, a very infant form. But anytime you log on to Google and you type something into a Google search engine, you're, you're dealing with artificial intelligence at that point, um, basically the Google algorithm. And one of the things I talk about that in the chapter is that in the past, we always had different uh, masters of the universe, whether they were gods or kings. Or, or people or uh, whatever scenario that we encountered as people, we had some say in, in our direction of life. But as AI comes into, into, into its fore, how much will we have control over our lives? Will the algorithms, will the artificial intelligence control us or will, will we be able to control it? Now, Douglas, I want you to talk about Marjorie Prime, brain-computer interface, and the nature of people. That's right. So in this chapter, uh, if you've, and again, each of these are based on movies, but Marjorie Prime was a great movie where you see a situation where a near-future family has a relative who has passed away, but their memories and their personality has been stored into a computer so that you can interact with that person. And one of the things that's coming is the possibility of having some rudimentary um, storage of people who have passed away, whether it just be their photos or maybe some of their memories or some of the visual images of their live movies, those kind of things. But increasingly, the, the computer will give us uh, more and more powerful ways to dis- to store the memories of people who have passed. And so in that way, what and one of the things I get into that chapter is what does it mean to be human? What does being human look like when you have the opportunity to access people from the past. And one of the examples I give in this chapter is that when you, if you go back through like my grandparents, my great-grandparents, I don't know anything about them. They are lost to the history of time. Their lives are completely inaccessible to me. But what will it look like in the future when our our whole lives are documented. I look at my kids and there are thousands of photos. I have thousands of digital photos of my kids. Their lives will be documented and understood at a level that people in the past cannot understand. We we don't understand um, the people that lived just a few generations before us. Now, I want you to talk about topic number six, robot and Frank, intelligent robots and the power of story. Right. So in this one, another uh, great movie tie-in, but we have a situation where increasingly we will see robots at work in our lives. Already there are robots who uh, serve fast food uh, meals at at a few places in California. Um, Obviously people are are talking about moving robots into households in some way um, and in good ways and in bad ways. And how does this change uh, who we are as people? In other words, if we have start having the indentured servant robot who comes into our house and cleans our house, what what will that say about us as people? What will that? How will we respond to that? Right now, if I get a the most basic intelligent robot in my house, which is probably the iRobot Roomba, and it goes across the floors and it cleans up after me and does those things. The, my relationship with that robot will be is very limited. I just program it. It does it. I don't pay it any mind. But as the robots become increasingly more and more powerful. How will we treat them? How will we respond to them? And in responding to them, what will it say to us uh, about us as human beings? 
So how do robots serve you at a restaurant in California? Ah, well, you can actually go and they will wait on you just like a waiter. Of course, it's not quite exactly like a human waiter, but it is it is similar to that. They can also cook the meals, you know, flip the burgers, that sort of thing, and it becomes a very automated process. But one of the things that happens, though, is is that if I go to a restaurant here in South Carolina and I'm rude to the waiter, they will throw me out, or at least they should. But if I am rude to the robot... What will they do? Will will anybody say anything? Or will our culture just um, kind of go downhill when we speak to robots and we treat them with disrespect? Should we respect robots? These are the questions that, that will come up the more humans on a, on a casual, everyday level interact with them. Uh, <clears throat> Douglas Estes is our guest. Braving the Future is his book. Uh, there's one little... A footnote on that sixth topic, uh, the power of story. Uh, explain that. You talked about intelligent robots. What does the power of story mean? Well, the power of story is that we is that when we look at stories, we as people are defined by the stories that we have. So, for example, as as Christians, um, we believe that Jesus came, died on the cross, rose again on the third day, uh, and gives us the ability to live a life that glorifies God. So that that is a powerful story. That is a truth, but it is also a story that imbues those of us who are Christians. In the same way, if our as we start, you know, as we increasingly believe the way technology comes into our lives, there will be other stories that comes with technology. So one of the stories that Hollywood likes to push is, and it doesn't originate in Hollywood, but Hollywood enjoys uh, pushing it, is this idea of transhumanism. So transhumanism is an idea that we can evolve as people through the power of technology. Um, And while there's not a whole lot of evidence that that really literally will occur, at least at this point, that is a powerful story that people will believe. And they may believe it instead of, say, the Christian story or, say, instead of the American story or whatever narrative, whatever story that people hold on to in their lives. This is a powerful story that's coming. You see it in movies like Transcendence with Johnny Depp, where people have this idea that if only they can reach a certain point in technology, that everything in life will be easy, um, and we will transcend what it means to be human. My guest is Douglas Estes. By the way, Douglas, I want you to take a minute and tell us about South University in Columbia, South Carolina. What can you tell us? Yes. Well, South University is a uh, university in South Carolina that focuses in on um, a variety of, of undergraduate and graduate areas. I teach in practical theology and New Testament um, in the Doctor of Ministry program here, but we also have a nursing program, a pharmacy program, undergraduate program, um, that sort of thing that goes uh, with a good-sized university. How many students? Well, in the Columbia campus, we have about 1,500 students. Mm-hmm. And then there are other outlets? Yes, they have a few other outlets like Savannah. That's where the original, um, the original campus was located, but they expanded beyond that. Douglas, <clears throat> what do your students think of what we're talking about here? Well, my students um, are <laughs> – well, that's an interesting question because the, the, the challenge and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that most people, most, even most Christians, they, they, they sort of use technology. We all use technology, but as far as thinking about – you know, having a philosophy of technology or, or questioning technology, it tends to be on a very limited level. So, you know, occasionally you'll find a, a Christian pastor, somebody who writes a blog, and they'll, you know, talk about the, the, all the evils of using your smartphone, but they probably, but they wrote it on a blog, um, and who knows, they may have tweeted it to everybody on their smartphone to read their blog. And so the, the problem is, is that the uncritical acceptance or the inability to think through um, technology becomes a challenge at times. And so I would say that my students are like most 
the average American, which is we spend a lot of time using technology, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about technology, especially technology that's on the horizon that will radically impact our lives. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. And when we come back, uh, Douglas Estes is going to talk to us first about transcendence, nanotechnology and biohackers. And, uh, then we'll uh, get to that last part of his book as well. Um, uh, just a quick note here. Uh, my latest book is just about ready to come out uh, very soon now, maybe another week or two. It's called Character Carved in Stone, and it's about the 12 benches on the campus at West Point, Army West Point, uh, 12 different words carved in there that, uh, are, are designed to inspire the cadets at West Point about how to live their lives. We had a marvelous time putting the book together, 12 chapters, each one about each one of those different words. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski, the basketball coach at Duke, wrote the foreword for us, and, of course, he's a West Point graduate. So uh, be on the lookout. Character carved in stone. Ravel is the publisher. More with Douglas Estes right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Douglas Estes is our guest, <clears throat> talking about his new book, Braving the Future. Douglas, as advertised, next topic, Transcendence, nanotechnology and biohackers. Tell us about that one. Sure. One of the future techs that's coming is nanotechnology, and that is uh, one of the technologies that can also really redefine our world. Uh, once things uh, be a- are able to move into that, uh, that area, um, people will be able to experience uh, – <clears throat> let, me, let me start that one again um, – the um, so nanotechnology is a technology that's a near future technology. It's probably one of the less understood of mm-hmm. the technologies, and as a result of that, uh, it's it's uncertain um, where that technology will go. Once we're able to manipulate matter on a nano level, uh, it introduces a whole new field of um, a revolution for technology. So one of the things that I get into in that chapter is this issue of biohacking. Mm-hmm. I come back to this from the earlier chapter because as we are able to experiment with our bodies and experiment with matter in a way that we've never been able to do before, it leads us into a place where we've never been. And so this is one of those technologies that is in the in the future, but it's one that will be here when our kids or grandkids um, are are themselves ready to uh, to be in this world. And then there's an eighth topic here: selfless cybernetics and the glory of tech. That's right. So cybernetics is the ability to have control over a system, over a process. And science fiction, we relate that to, for example, um, the ability to control body parts by uh, mechanical means. So, for example, if somebody is uh, replaces their heart um, with a prosthetic or, pr- let's say, replaces a limb with a prosthetic limb, then you have a very early example of cybernetics. But increasingly what will happen is, is that as time goes on, we will be able to replace human body parts. We'll be able to replace um, things that are broken in our bodies with new um, products that are either made of metal or made of organic matter. And so what happens is at that point is it raises the question of life expectancy for people and also what does it mean for us as as a society, if if people can can continue to extend their life and and people can live into the 80s to the 90s to the 100s, how will that how will that change our culture? How will that change our society? The other thing that is a is a current in the book and is an issue that that comes up whenever you talk about future technology is this idea of a singularity. Will we ever reach a point where we can kind of 
keep living where every disease is eradicated, every uh, problem in the human body is eliminated, and we can live into the 150s, the 200s, and that sort of range. And and we don't know the answer to that. It seems unlikely at this point, but um, with how much uh, improvements medical technology have made in the last 100 years, it's hard to say what kind of improvements could be made in the next couple of hundred years when it comes to medical technology and life expectancy. Douglas, uh, you write these words. Often, when it comes to issues related to science and technology, Christian discussions seem about two steps behind. Can you expand on that? Sure. Yes. Uh, As I mentioned a couple seconds ago, one of the things that uh, is a challenge about technology is that we like to use it, but we we don't like to talk about it. And when we look back over the 20th century, there are lots of examples of where technology has come, and then only after it have Christians had discussions about how to use it or, you know, what are are good ways of using it, um, what are negative ways of using it. And at the same time, it allows us, well, it prevents us actually from being more engaging of the technology and being wiser about its use. So we, I can think of lots of examples. Uh, for example, uh, television and movies is a great example. You know, Christians at first were a little hesitant to get involved in that. Many, many segments of Christians were. Um, and as a result of it, they, they kind of punted on the idea of being involved with TV um, and radio for, for quite some time, especially TV and movies. Um, then only later did they catch up with it. Uh, likewise, I can point to the Internet and smartphones where um, instead of Christians discussing how does this really impact um, us, how does this change society, they sort of allowed these things to come into, into use and only later now are saying, wait a minute, how do we approach this? How do we, how do we do this well? So one of the goals of the book was to encourage people to start thinking about some of these things now before robots come and start you know, serving fast food in your local fast food place. How are we going to treat them? Are we going to treat them like people? Are we going to treat them like robots? And I don't mean in how we talk to them, but I mean, are we going to respect them? Are we going to treat them with love? Are we going to treat them as neighbors? Or are we just going to treat them as we might, you know, a our car or some other mechanical device that, that we feel like is just for us to use and then throw away and be done with? Douglas, uh, I want you to talk some more to us about this word transhumanism. Sure. uh, The new philosophy emerging from Silicon Valley, and I guess it promotes radical life extension through tech. Uh, I want to hear more. That's right. So transhumanism is a philosophy that marries two things. It marries humanism and it marries technology. And let me explain what that means. So Uh, A dominant philosophy or idea in our society for the last couple hundred years is humanism. Humanism is basically the idea that that people are the ultimate source of all that is good and useful in our universe. That is, people who define things. So if you ask someone, is something right or wrong, then humanism says, well, it's how you feel about it that defines determines whether it's right or wrong. Obviously, this is a rejection of Judeo-Christian values, because in Judeo-Christian tradition, if we did want to determine whether something is right or wrong, then we, we ask God. You know, there is a, a divine idea about whether something is right or something is wrong. So humanism is the, the philosophy that's been uh, a major current in Western culture for the last couple hundred years. Humanism, though, has some weaknesses, as if you you know, been watching the news for the last 10 or 15 years. Humanism has some weaknesses because what happens when various humans don't agree? What happens when my heart tells me to do something that's different than someone else's heart? So to to kind of move past this blockade in culture, um, a number of people, a percentage of people, especially coming out of Silicon Valley, have encouraged the role of technology to kind of be the deciding factor. So transhumanism is the idea that that by the power of technology, we will be able to improve ourselves as humans to the point that we can make the world a better place. So it's not just people making the world a better place. It's people powered by technology. Um, 
as a result of that, one of the key ideas is that technology will allow us to live more and more fuller and more and more longer lives. Some people, like Ray Kurzweil and others in Silicon Valley, they even argue that technology will allow us to live maybe hundreds of years, um, which will change the way that we are, in effect, the master of our universe. We as people, not God, not other things that um, societies in the past have held to be the master of the universe. Uh, and Douglas, uh, as I read your book, I think what you're telling us is to choose trust in God over fearful retreat and follow Jesus over uncritical engagement with technology. Am I, am I right? No, you're exactly right. Yes, you're exactly right. I think that one of the things that Christians are too quick to do is when they see a new technology, they 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 make a, a judgment based on the technology rather than taking the time to think about who they are and who God is. Braving the Future is a book about how future technology is going to influence us as people, but no matter how technology tries to influence us, God is still God, we are still people, and our primary goal is to negotiate our relationship with God regardless of technology. Douglas, wonderful to talk to you. Uh, I think your book has great value, and uh, it's it's a fascinating read, and I hope people enjoy it as much as I did. Yes, thank you very much. Douglas Estes has been our guest uh, from his office at South University in Columbia, South Carolina. The name of the book, Braving the Future. We've got a wrap-up right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Kevin Thompson joined us from his home in Arkansas, talking about his book, Happily, uh, a very good look at at marriage. Uh, And then Douglas Estes joined us uh, from his office in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, talking about the book Braving the Future. A very interesting man, by the way, and the book is quite intriguing. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, I've got a new book coming. It's called Character Carved in Stone. Uh, We take a look at those 12 benches at Trophy Point on the campus at Army West Point and uh, do a chapter on each one of those different words carved into each bench. Uh, We're back next weekend for more right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You are listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.